Okay, so we are, as you might know, or might not know, we are busy with a series. Uh, we started last week with the first sermon in this five-week series. The series is called Unsubscribe. And last week, Yuan talked to us about community. And the bottom line was that there is no such thing like Christianity without community. It doesn't exist. If you are a Christian, it is expected of you to be in a community, and that's also the way that God has revealed to us is, is the way of the cross. So from Hebrews 10, uh, Johan showed us that um, we might think, or if you follow the logic of uh, the sacrifices being made in the, in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, then you might think that we don't really have to come together anymore because the sacrifices are not necessary anymore. It has been made once and for all, and we all now have salvation um, if we believe in God. But that's not the case. We still need to come together. Um, and we looked at the text and saw that we need to stir each other up, or um, as he aptly showed, we need to irritate each other towards good works. Um, that's one of the reasons why we need to get to, together, to, to stir each other up, irritate one another towards good works. This is the way of the cross. Now, um, Johan also said last week, you can attend church and you can consume a sermon, you can co even consume the community, consume some conversation. Um, you can even consume a cell group. I think it gets harder the smaller the group becomes um, and the more personal it becomes. But uh, it is possible to be there without it actually changing your life. So the key thing that we need to ask ourselves in this regard is how present are we there where we are? How invested are we in, in that community or that church or that cell group or that family or that job or that group of friends that we are in? Now, this idea of being present is something that the secular world loves. They call it mindfulness. You know how we often hear the saying like, savor the moment because it's the only thing we have. Or, you know, be mindful in, in what is in front of you now, what's happening now around you. The, the author, uh, Richard Foster, wrote a book in 2005 called The Freedom of Simplicity, Finding Harmony in a Complex World. Now, he's a Christian, and the book uh, is also Christian, but it was a roaring success in the secular society because of the case that it makes for simplicity, for minimalism. So this idea of the, this Christian idea of simplicity and the simplicity we see in God as um, a, a being, a whole being that is whole and perfect in itself and the clarity and simplicity that that brings um, can be translated to minimalism, to, you know, simpleness that brings clarity and um, 
and so on. Now, this, this success was devastating to Foster because they completely missed the point. And the thing is that these principles are good for all humans. You know, think how the, the ancients, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians must have reacted on the Ten Commandments. Brilliant guys, if we don't kill each other, if we don't steal, if we don't lie to each other, life is pretty good. Like we can, you know, we can build a society on this. Great, thanks, Israel. So, I mean, these principles are general. They are, we are all, you know, humans made with the same user manual. So uh, the, the principles are um, applicable to all humans. So the question is, what makes the Christians not murdering each other different than the secular society not murdering each other, or the Christian simplicity different than the secular minimalism, or the Christian being present different than the secular mindfulness? So the answer, and I'd like to share how I came to this from the Bible in a second, the answer is the person next to you. That's what, what makes it different for the Christian. So please open your Bibles, or if you have a, um, an app with your Bible on, please open it because we're going to spend quite some time um, in the Bible and going through this passage verse for verse. So I think it will really help. If you have the text in front of you, there might be some extra Bibles on the bookshelf over there. Um, yeah, so please open with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verse 13 to 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and uh, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience in the truth, by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, 
let's look at this text. Let's take it verse for verse. Verse 13, therefore. Now, you cannot start a sermon with a passage that begins with therefore. I mean, it's, it's illegal because it shows that the previous part is important and applicable. So we need to just quickly um, recap what happened in verses 1 to 13. And the thing that Peter is here speaking to them about, saying therefore, is the salvation that the, the audience that he wrote to um, have in Christ's death and resurrection. Now, these people are living as exiles in the, in the um, provinces of Asia. We see it in verse, verse 1. Um, and they are disillusioned by their suffering because they have now come to faith and they have now received the salvation, but their circumstances are not actually changing. And they are wondering, you know, what's, what's happening here and is the salvation even effective and all of that. And Peter is encouraging them to keep the faith because he says their hope will, will not be proven empty and one day they will receive the outcome of their faith. In verse 9 he says they will receive the salvation of their souls one day. And this has been uh, set up to be like this from the beginning. He refers to the prophets who has who have prophesied about this for centuries. Um, he encourages them by saying, yes, you are going through temporal suffering, but the salvation remains true. So keep the faith and keep the hope. Now, verse 13 then continues. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now, your Bibles might translate it in different ways. Some of your Bibles might have a footnote there that says, literally, the, the Greek says, girding up the loins of your mind. Now, loins is not a word we use daily, but it means putting up the belt of your minds or putting on the underpants of your minds, not having your minds hang loosely. That's really literally what he's saying. It's a very visual uh, image he's creating here, and he um, emphasizes it in the next word, and being sober-minded, that's what he means, like preparing your minds for action, like keeping your mind together, pulling everything together so that you can be sober-minded. Um, and then we continue, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he's saying while you are here, while you're present, while you're sober-minded, Set your hope on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that, not tension, but almost tension, like while you are sober-minded, got your mind on the things that are important, set your hope on the future, set your hope on the fulfillment of your faith. Also, in some later verse, I think 20 or so, and he speaks of uh, your faith and hope that are in God. So I'd like to um, just sound this point for, for a moment uh, because we often see these two words together and paired with the word love, faith, hope, and love. Um, in the epistles, we find them throughout, actually. Um, so what, you know, what's the relationship between these? Uh, there's a German theologian, Moltmann, who wrote a book, The Theology of Hope, 
And I'd like to read a quote from, uh, from this book to you about the relationship between hope and faith. Hope is nothing else than the expectation of those things which faith has believed to have been truly promised by God. Thus, faith believes God to be true. Hope awaits the time when this truth shall be manifested. Faith believes that he is our father. Hope anticipates that he will ever show himself to be a father towards us. Faith believes that eternal life has been given to us. Hope anticipates that it will sometime be revealed. Faith is the foundation upon which hope rests. Hope nourishes and sustains faith. All right, so that was to me quite a helpful idea of thinking about the relationship between hope and faith. Now let's continue with verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, your former ignorance, your, your former state of being without knowledge, the passions of not knowing what's good for you and what is expected of you and, you know, what will lead to a good life. Uh, then you have all kinds of different passions and he's saying, do not be conformed to those passions. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The Afrikaans Bible says, in alle levenswandel. It's, I like that phrase, in all your walks of life, in, in everything you do, be holy. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, as mentioned, these people were exiles. In, uh, there were probably Jewish believers who were living in exile. And in that sense, we are not exiles in, in, in the same sense that they were. But once we become Christians, we are residing aliens. We are uh, or, or resident aliens because our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says in the letter to the Philippians. Now, this leads us to the classic Christian question and a constant tension, I think, in all of our lives of, the, of where the sweet spot is between being present and investing in this world, in this life, and looking towards the future and living in the hope of the coming salvation. It brings us back to verse 13 of that tension of being sober-minded and hoping in the future. Now, if this is something that you want to think more on or, or read more, um, I would encourage you to look at the story of Daniel again, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. He's kind of our, our patron saint or our great example of someone who I think got that tension very well, you know, um, living uh, for the good of this world and seeking the good of the Babylonian empire in which he, um, he lived, but having his citizenship in another empire in another kingdom. Now, this also kind of relates to the question of why secular mindfulness is so different from the Christian being present, because secular mindfulness doesn't want you to look to that hope. It doesn't want you to look 
at the larger questions in life. It just wants you to focus on what's in front of you now. The Christian way, in contrary to that, is seeing what is in front of you, really seeing, getting the eternal perspective so that you know what to do now. So it's that constant toggle between being present now with the person in front of you or the work you have to do, whatever it is, but thinking of the hope you have, the coming salvation, the coming judgment, and knowing what's the right thing to do now. So let's continue. We are at verse 18 now. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, this word, word futile ways, the, you know, the empty way of life. The Afrikaans translation says, Your sinlose lewe, wat jy geërfet, that you inherited from your forefathers, the meaningless, ineffectual, vain life. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I get this, you know, constricted feeling on my chest when I think that my life might be meaningless, might be futile, that what I'm doing is not actually having an effect in any way. So, if you really want to stir me up to good works, tell me my faith is being ineffectual and I will garden that garden and do whatever. <laughs> because this is just a horrible idea, a life being ineffectual. Then we understand why people give in to the passions of being without knowledge. They're without knowledge that there is a better life, there is a meaningful life. So that's the futile ways that we have inherited from our forefathers. Now continuing, um, knowing this, I'm reading from verse 18 again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And now verse 22 and 23, the, um, the, the key verses in, in this part. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now I asked at the beginning, what is it that makes the Christians call to being present different than the secular mindfulness? And the answer was, the person next to you, yes. So this is where I got that from, verses 22 and 23. Peter shows here, six things. So I, I think we can identify, I don't want to call it steps because it's, it's not steps, but kind of six uh, important concepts in these two verses. Um, so the six are, and then I will go into each one of them in more detail. But the first one is by obeying the truth. 
So he gives it in the inverse. He says in, in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So it starts with obedience to the truth. The second one, purifying your souls. The third concept, unto a sincere brotherly love. The fourth one, to love each other from a pure heart. The fifth one, because we have been born again. And then the last one, through the living and abiding word of God. Now let's unpack these six things. The first one here is by obeying the truth. So how can we obey the truth if we don't know the truth? Now, the truth is very much related to or very much corresponding to that which is real. The real things in life, the things that we can experience that is real, but also the things that makes the most sense of the data we see around us, even if we can't see it, like gravity. We don't see gravity, but we know it's real because it, it makes the most sense of things falling down here and not on the moon. So I'd like to read an excerpt from the Screwtape Letters, which if you don't know it, it was the prescribed reading for this uh, sermon. Sorry if you missed that, but you can still catch up. Please read it. It's, it's really, really a good book. Um, it's by C.S. Lewis, and the, so what, what he does, um, it's quite comical, but it's a, a senior demon writing to his nephew, which is a younger demon, on how to best tempt humans and ultimately get them to hell. So write what this uncle is telling his nephew about having humans experience the real things in life, both the good and the bad, the pains and the pleasures, he calls them. Let's look at it. You allowed the patient, the patient uh, is now one of us, we are called the patients in this book, you allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed because he enjoyed it and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes and taken alone. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as to not see the danger of this? The characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real, and therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. So, we have to experience, really experience, both the pains and the pleasures of life in order to be in touch with reality in order to know and discern what is truth. Which brings us to the second point, the beginning of verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now our souls, the, the seat of our emotions and our thoughts, the, this is where our lusts lie, our greed, our jealousy, our cowardice, our pride and anger and laziness, all these impurities in our souls needs to be subjected to the truth, needs to be purified. They're all remnants of this 
futile life that we have inherited from our forefathers. And the beautiful thing is that it can be purified by the pure blood of the Lamb, Jesus, who walked a life on earth without blemish. He wasn't, in a sense, and this can become a very theological discussion, but he wasn't born uh, perfect in a sense that he still had to walk the life perfectly. He was born perfectly in a sense that he was God when he was a baby, but he still, he still experienced those temptations, those fears, those anguishes that we also experience, and he withstood them. He did the right thing. He had that eternal perspective and constantly knew what's the right thing to do now. So the first two points, we have to know the truth and obey the truth so that we can purify our souls. Peter could have stopped there and said, so that you can feel good about yourselves and have a blessed life. He didn't. He didn't stop there. The sentence goes immediately into the next point. Unto a sincere brotherly love. It's that person sitting next to you. It's whoever you meet in your walk of life, in your day. A person at home or a friend who's really been on your mind lately. Unto sincere brotherly love. And then he kind of, kind of repeats that point by saying, to love each other from a pure heart. So you obey the truth to purify your soul unto sincere brotherly love so that you can love each other with a pure heart. He's really emphasizing both the purity that is needed for us to sincerely love each other. Otherwise, there will always be some underlying motive or some, some greed or something that we can get from this relationship or this love that we are giving this person. No, we need to love each other from a pure heart. And that can only happen if we know the truth and purify our souls according to the, or in, in correspondence with the truth. Now, it goes on. The next point, because we have been born again. So this is not something that we just do because it's, it's not random. It's not a random act. It's because we have been born again, which is also uh, that which enables us to do it because we have been ransomed. A, a price has been paid to ransom us from this meaningless life that we have inherited. So this impure soul, this sinful nature that we inherited is part of the old person. But we cannot entertain this anymore once we are born again. It is still present in us. Each one of us can agree on that. Once we have been born again, it doesn't just vanish. But we cannot entertain it. It's because it doesn't correspond with the truth, with the truth of, of Jesus' salvation work done on the cross and through the resurrection. Now, the last thing in this uh, sequence of Peter it says because we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God so what's what's another word for abiding what does abiding mean it 
It means, yeah, it means being present. It means being here, the living and abiding word of God. So what do, what do the deists believe? Anyone, deists, what do they believe about God and his presence? Yes, yes. So he's impersonal. He created and then went away. He's, he's not present here. What do Orthodox Christianity believe? We believe he created and he remained present. He abided with his creation. He didn't create and then just leave. He remains present with his creation. He, it's even in one of his revealed names in the book of Isaiah. He's called Emmanuel. It means God with us. He is so present, in fact, that he saw our suffering and decided to step in, to step down, becoming present even in our physical form as humans and walking with us on earth. He was present in everything that we experience, present in our temptations, as I said earlier, in our temptations, our fears, our anguish, he was so present, in fact, that he had to experience the wrath of God on our behalf so that we who believe in him don't have to. He was, he was not only present in our physical form, he was present in our mental form, in our soul form, and he was present in the wrath, the punishment that we need to receive for our, for our sins. And now we can be present in his resurrection. He has given us the ultimate gift of his presence, and that is the Holy Spirit. So we see that us being present is not arbitrary because it stems from a God being present. Our being present is also aimed at him. Just like our holiness isn't arbitrary and our suffering isn't arbitrary, we see in, in verse 16 in this uh, passage that Peter quotes from the Old Testament where he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. We can almost also fill in, you shall be present because I am present. As he is present in us and as he was present in our sins, so we should be present in him. As he was present with his friends, with those he walked with, with his sons, we should now be present with those around us, with our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. Now, okay, so I could end the sermon here, and that might have been a good idea, but there's still a, an elephant in the room, something that we have not touched on, and that is the fact that the series is called Unsubscribe, and the sermon is called Face to Facebook, and we have not spoken about technology or social media or, or, or any of that, because it's important to first start at the principles, you know, to otherwise it, your changes you make with your, in your relationship with technology won't be long-lasting if it doesn't stem from the truth 
revealed by God. But um, technology is probably the biggest culprit for us being distracted in this life. It's, it's not the only culprit. Um, there's been other things throughout history, be it alcohol or drugs or other people or whatever. There are many things that might distract us, um, but for the sake of uh, uh, time and so on, we'll just you know, narrow it down to technology for now. But the, the principles remain the same. Now, technology is, and, and cell phones and constantly being connected is, is really a big problem, I think, um, for us. In, in the Netherlands, there's an app that parents can download that if they are on their phones, uh, the app picks up something along the lines of mama, mama, or papa, papa, and it gives you a pop-up saying, leave your phone, your child needs you. And the phone kind of just, uh, you know, shuts down. I mean, children can really misuse that. But um, the point is, I don't know if, if you've spoken to someone. Oh, I hate it when my parents do this. But um, this morning it happened again. I was like, okay, I'm leaving. Bye. And she was like on a phone. I'm like, bye. And then after a while, okay, okay, yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, good, I'm like, oh man, this is a problem. So the thing is, technology promises you that you can be present everywhere, but the side effect, which we don't always know beforehand, is that we are present nowhere. So there's only... There's only one thing, one person, who is able to be present at more than one place at the same time, and that is God. So, I mean, I'm not going to start a church on this, but do you hear the echo of something said in the Garden of Eden? So the snake told Eve, God doesn't want you to eat from the... The, the, that tree because then you will have knowledge like God and God doesn't want you to be like him. That was the promise given by the snake. Now, the promise that technology is giving us is that we can in some way be a little more like God. We can be omnipresent. We can be present everywhere. And we might believe it, we might tap into it, because yes, I mean, I can see what my friends are doing, you know, overseas or whatever, but it's a lie, because it takes away your presence here. And it's not something that we as humans are supposed to have, or supposed to be able to do. We were not made to be present at more than one place at the same time. So, I'm, I'm not saying that technology comes directly from hell. You're not, we're not, we're gonna, not going to, you know, if you take bread for communion, you put in your cell phone, and we're going to use it to, you know, fix the roof and build a garden with cell phones. And so, I mean, we're not going to do that. We're not that kind of church. But um, the problem is, and the question you need to ask yourself is, who's serving who in your relationship with technology? Because if technology isn't serving you, it will enslave you. The futurist author 
uh, Yuval Noah Harari wrote a book, 20, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And I'd like to read you what he says in this book about technology and especially about the future. And I mean, we all know that the algorithms are getting really, really smart. Let's see what he writes about that. Technology isn't bad. If you know what you want in life, technology can help you get it. But if you don't know what you want in life, it will be all too easy for technology to shape your aims for you and take control of your life. In the end, it's a simple empirical matter. If the algorithms indeed understand what's happening within you better than you understand it, authority will shift to them. Okay, so practically, where's the list? Okay, Anna, nice, we believe you. Give us a list of all the do's and don'ts of technology uh, so that I can you know, tick them off throughout my week and know that I am on the right path. There is no list because this is not a law. This is a principle. It's it, it will look different for each of us depending on our distractions, on, on what it is that keeps us from being present. Now, I can, I mean, I can give you examples of what would be on my list if that's helpful. Um, for one, I tend to, to treat WhatsApp like a Facebook feed. So I scroll through it and read everything and think, oh, that's oh, this person, oh, oh, that's cute. And then I don't answer forever. And everyone who sent me a message is like, yeah, I'm so glad she knows that because it's horrible. And so for me, and that's where the thing comes in that you need to really be honest with yourself. For me, being more present means I need to be on my WhatsApp and answer my messages. Because that will show the people <laughs> that message me that I love them, that I care, that I actually want to answer um, their messages. So it's, you have to be very, very aware of, of where you're at with technology and with social media and with all these apps and everything. Because I'm not saying they're all bad. Um, on Monday we had Sal and someone asked, okay, you know, let's just by raise of hand, you know, who has Facebook, who has Instagram and so on. And, you know, people did it and someone like, oh, I have it. And, you know, and people started to give reasons for why they have it. So someone's like, yeah, I have Facebook, but it's more like, you know, a contact book for me. So I, I know uh, like who, you know, and yes, I have Instagram, but it's because I have a dog and it's like a dog, you know, people were like, and I was like, this is not the point, guys. This is not, you know, delete everything you have. Um, but it was, but then I realized it's actually good that people think, why do I have this platform or this app? And is it serving those around me? And is it serving me or helping me to serve those around me? Or is it taking away from that? And then if, if it does take away, we need to make that hard decision to tone down on, on that app and to unsubscribe from the things that are distracting us instead of connecting us, which is actually the, the, the point of technology as well. So it might be different for you. It might be podcasts or audiobooks that you listen um, when you're on the road or whenever. But just ask yourself, is this uh, serving me or... Is it keeping me away from time that I could pray 
or time that I could process my day or think about something I've read or think about uh, my relationships with people. Or it might be music, it might be emails or Twitter or Instagram. It might be series or movies that is keeping you from being productive, keeping you from, you know, rather doing something that will serve those around you and just kind of distracting you, filling your, your days or your hours. Or it might not be that. You might have come back from a whole day of serving others and really, you know, in a good and filled place and just relaxing with a good movie or a good series. And then I'm not saying stop with that. And I'm saying, you know, you do you um, with that series. Then it's good. It might be constantly reading the news, being really up to date with everything in the world, missing the person in front of you, or missing the opportunity to pray for someone, or to, to really think something through, or processing an emotion that you're feeling. So, there are no rules, there are no laws, I'm sorry, it, it would have made it much easier if they were, if there was just a list and we could tick things off. But what our relationship with technology really needs is to be submitted to the truth of God. And our relationship with technology needs to be purified unto a sincere brotherly love, unto love of each other with a pure heart. So we will now be going into communion and communion is the ultimate celebration of Jesus' presence. It is the imminence of his body and his blood. We are taking something very physical, something that we can taste and smell and, ta and feel and it is reminding us of the present, the very present God that we are serving. So as we take communion, I want you to, and throughout the, the rest of the evening and the rest of the week, I want you to consider these things, these um, principles or concepts that Peter mentions. Uh, I want you to consider what is distracting you from knowing reality? What is distracting you from really experiencing the pains and the pleasures of the things uh, that you experience? And how is that keeping you from purifying your soul, purifying your emotions and your thoughts and submitting them to the truth of our salvation in Christ? What, what is keeping you, what is distracting you from a sincere love for those around you? And think of this symbol of the blood and the body of Christ. Think of how that is what, in, what gave us the new life in God, what made us born again. And then those beautiful words that Peter uses, the living and abiding word of God, what is keeping you from being present 
in the living and the abiding word of God. And then as something practical, think who's that one person that who really needs your sincere love now. And decide now, tonight, what you will do to show that love to them. And go out this week and do that thing. And keep on thinking on that. Take it step by step. And if you interact with your phone or with any other form of technology or distraction, think, is this serving me or is this enslaving me? Because ultimately, we serve a God who is present, who has been present throughout all the ages, and who is calling a people to be present for ourselves? No. Unto brotherly love. To be present so that we can love those around us. So I will pray for us, and then after the prayer, um, the communion will be served as you, as you sit, so you can take it um, with each other or, or on your own if you prefer that. And the worship team will also um, sing us a song, but I really want you to take this time to consider these things. Think about uh, the, the questions that we have spoken of. All right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we now, now go into a time of communion, we are so immensely grateful for your presence. From the time that you created, you have been present with your creation. Lord, you have manifested in the form, in our human form, being present in everything that we experience in life and being present in the sins that you did not do. Taking the punishment for wrongs that you have not committed but that we have committed. And Lord, we cannot but react in great thankfulness towards you, Lord, and in a life of obedience, obedience to this truth of our salvation, the faith we have and the hope which enables us to love one another. Lord, I pray as we, as we take the bread and as we take the wine that we will remember your body that has been broken for us, your blood, your pure pure blood that has been spilled for our impure souls so that we might be purified once we are born again. Lord, and remind us always, every day, because we tend to forget it so quickly, that it is not unto ourselves, it is unto each other, unto a sincere love for each other that we are purified. It is not inwardly focused, but outwardly focused. So, Lord, make this practical for us. Only your Spirit can, can show us, can bring up the things that we need to change, each one of us. It looks so different for each one of us. And 
I pray that you will open this up to us, that we will be honest with ourselves and that we will be willing to obey and to let these things go. I thank you, Lord, for your word and that it is living and abiding and that we can ever find truth in it and application in our lives now. Be present with us, Lord. Abide with us as we now also abide with you in this remembrance of the death you died on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.